if you'd invested in an index fund 15 years ago, the S&P 500 index fund, you would have beaten over 95% of all the thousands of mutual funds in America over that period. My guest today is Robin Wigglesworth. Robin is the Financial Times global finance correspondent. His most recent book is Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades invented the index fund and changed finance forever. Trillions is about the incredible true story of the iconoclastic geeks who defied conventional wisdom and endured Wall Street's scorn to launch the index fund revolution. Index funds have democratized investing and saved investors hundreds of billions of dollars in fees that would have otherwise lined Wall Street's pockets. I recently sat down with Robin and talked about the secret history of an invention Wall Street wishes was never created. Robin, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And, and I want to tell you, you did an outstanding job uh, with this book. It's really phenomenal. Trillions, how a band of Wall Street renegades invented the index fund and changed finance forever. Really, really great read. Thanks so much for being on the show. No, thanks for having me. And, and thanks for saying that. It was a uh... A slog to get it done during the pandemic, so I'm glad that you know it seems to be resonating. Oh, I, I like it. You know, it's it's. I remember watching this industry grow. Uh, I was in my teens at the time with money markets and then uh, index funds uh, around the same time. I didn't know anything about the cast of characters, uh, and uh, I I started just as an aside. I started trading on the uh, New York Futures Exchange in 1983, and that was the whole move towards indexes because at the same time they're trading the S&P 500. And I thought it was brilliant. You no longer have to pick anything. You just trade in a major index. No, I mean, and also must, must have been a fascinating time trading futures that are in the 80s. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. All right, man. Uh, I, what, what, let me ask you a first question. The index funds, S&P index funds, and all the other index funds, how much money are is currently there? I heard like $3 trillion. Is that more or less right or uh yes well that's just in exchange traded funds and in the us so this has gone from an industry that was invented overwhelmingly in the states to being a global phenomenon now so if you look at morningstar and the investment company institute data you tally up all the publicly known index funds so those are sort of classic mutual funds like vanguards to ETFs like BackRock and, and, and others, then you're talking $17 trillion now. Wow. And even that is actually in the tip of the iceberg because a lot of big investment funds, like a sovereign wealth fund in the Gulf or China, pen, big pension plans in the US, they do this in-house. They don't need to pay somebody to do an index tracking strategy in a fund format. Right. So you add that all together, and I reverse engineered some data I got from BlackRock. They're not keen to talk about this because uh, they think big numbers might scare people. But I calculate conservatively that we're talking around 26 trillion dollars globally wow. in index strategies that's a, which 17 trillion we can see right so you're talking about global gdp is what 80 trillion or so and just to put you know just put those numbers there it's almost a third of global gdp in a passive strategy so before we even get into it i just want to for those listening in what an index fund is what's passive management as opposed to active management. What's the difference and why do I care? Broadly speaking, you know, throughout centuries, 
uh, we've invested in pool investment vehicles. So back in the day, the 19th century, that might have been an investment trust. And then the 20th century, it was the era of the mutual fund. So that's when you give your money, lots of people give their money to a pool investment fund run by a professional that might have a team of traders and analysts and lawyers, and they try to pick the best stocks and avoid the worst ones. So in some cases, they might even try to short those worst ones, the ones that they think are going down the drain. Uh, and that's kind of how it was up until essentially 1971, where there was this dawning realization that actually in practice, even the professionals do a pretty bad job at this. And but bad, but one second, one second, Robin. A bad job at what? Beating the index? Yes, beating the index. So, frankly, even indices have been around for a long time, but people didn't benchmark their fund manager against them. If you go back to the 30s and 40s and 50s and even 60s to a large extent, people didn't really know what the overall stock market was doing. You had some indices like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which you know has been around for ages, but it's not actually that good. It has all sorts of technical problems with it. The S&P 500, which is a really good index and, and has a lot of history now, that only was born in the 50s. Okay. So people literally didn't know what to measure their fund managers against until the 60s and 70s. Right. Now, why that's important is because if I'm putting my money with a manager and paying them a fee, I want them to beat some type of benchmark. And prior to the S&P 500 index, which is an average or an index weighted, let's not even talk about that, but let's call it 500 stocks, which are weighted a certain way, which gives us a good number of the stock market. If I did 20% and the S&P did 19%, I worth my weight in salt because I beat the benchmark. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. And you want those fund managers to maybe not beat their benchmark every year, but in the long run, they should, right? Well, that's why you're paying a professional to manage your money. Right. Now, for a long time, people thought that's what they did. It makes intuitive sense that, you know, the professionals will do better than, you know, your average dentist or lawyer investing their own money. Um, but actually, what people started discovering in the 60s, but especially in the 70s, when there was this massive bear market, the biggest since the Great Depression, that actually they do, on average, a bad job. Okay. And that ended up helping birth the very first index fund, which is just a fancy way of saying a fund that buys all the stocks in one of these indices. Got it. So they don't try to choose the hot or the, or the bad or avoid the bad ones. They just buy everything. Right. And they do it cheaply. So the Because even people that, you know, don't think marks are particularly efficient – uh, that actually there are all sorts of challenges for active managers. Uh, there are all sorts of opportunities they can take advantage of. Can see that the cost of these fund managers is is quite a headwind. It's a bit like starting a football game a few goals down every game because they have to make their own fees back before any gains right, they get right. accrue to the investor. Right. Right. So a lot of people actually like index funds not necessarily because they were of academic zealots. They just liked that they were cheap. Okay. They were a cheap, simple product in an industry that loved complexity and high cost. Okay, let's take this a step back for a second. I'm giving my money. I made a lot of money. I want it to be managed. It's 1960. I give it to you, the Wigglesworth Investment Management Team. Your pitch to me is, look, Charles, I can find the handful of stocks which are going to outperform the market. 
So if the market does 20%, we should do exceedingly better than the market. And for that, you pay me a percentage, 1% or 2% management fee. And I say, hey, that makes a lot of sense because you're going to bring me uh, an above average return or above the benchmark. And you're telling me what happened over time is that investors, these are pension plans, these are big money people, they kept saying, you know, paying Wigglesworth is a waste of time and a waste of money because not only are the fees eating into performance, but this guy is not even coming close to the benchmark. Is that more or less it? Pretty much. I mean, you can imagine back in those days, there, were, there was a mutual fund industry that was growing very quickly, but nothing like it is today. And the big market were big pension plans of General Electric or IBM at the time, uh, some of the state pension plans. And they had maybe invested in 100 of these fund managers. And they could see what they were doing was essentially just swapping bananas and apples between them. So you not only did you have the cost of paying them this 1%, 2%, but quite often they pushed the cost of trading over to you as an investor. So if you were, let's say, AT&T's pension plan manager, and you invested in fund manager A and fund manager B, you could see fund manager A was selling IBM stock to fund manager B. And fund manager B was maybe selling General Electric stock back to fund manager A. So essentially, that's what's going on all the time, incurring massive costs and also the, obviously the just cost of salaries. So that's why they were starting, in reality, not just a few goals down, but, you know, it was it was difficult for them. I mean, that's why I always say, like, these people aren't lazy. They're not bad people. It's just a really, really difficult job. And to do it consistently, the data is proven pretty conclusively is, is close to impossible, really. Why? Why is that? Why is it so hard to beat the index? Well, let's say some of it is uh, the theory that marks are relatively efficient. And that doesn't mean that they're perfect, because we can see people do dumb things in markets all the time. We can see individual companies blow up or go down the drain and, and market bubbles and bursts all the time. But over the time, they should be fairly efficient because it reflects the sum of millions of relatively informed people trying to do their best to make money. And over time, the people that are really bad at this lose all their money. So over time, the market should be you know, relatively efficient. But frankly, even if you don't believe in that, one thing that we have discovered more recently is that it's a staggeringly narrow club of companies that account for vast majority of the stock market gains. So in the United States, over the last 90 years, almost the past century, basically, only 4% of companies, around 1,000 companies, account for all the $36 trillion worth of gains over the past century. Right. And what are the odds, Half of those and what are, the odds are you picking any of those 1,000 out of that? Exactly. This is it. So essentially, if you do pick one of those, and it might, let's face it, be blind luck, you can sustain an entire career as a successful investor if you choose one of these massive compounders one of these massive winners over time. Let's say if you invested in IBM when it was a cheap and cheerful startup or General Electric a century ago, right? right. It would have been absolutely astonishing up until very recently. So that's why index funds essentially is saying the, the theory behind it is that there are some gold needles in this haystack, but just buy the entire haystack cheaply rather than have somebody scratch through it and eventually not come up with something. Or maybe if you're lucky, they come up with a golden needle or two. But statistically, we know that 
over a 10-year period, only around 10% of professional fund managers actually managed to beat their benchmarks. Right. So when indexing, and I don't want to get into it because your book does a fantastic job and goes into detail, and I want to tell you something about that at, at the end, uh, what I took away from this about the players that you that you uh, wrote about. But before we talk about that, um, the fund managers, when these new quants, these quantitative guys, these computer nerds who don't care about the earnings or the fundamentals of a company, they try to create this index to make it tradable or investable. And at the time, the mutual fund managers are pissed. They don't want this to come out, right? No, I mean, it's natural, right? It's human nature. I didn't particularly, I mean, I like using the internet, but I'm a financial journalist, so it's my day job. I don't quite like what it's done to the economics of my business either, right? Even though it's generally made the world a better place, it's not been great for my industry. And that's kind of how the finance industry saw this. Admittedly, to be honest, at the beginning, most of them just thought the idea was kind of comical. I mean, the idea that you'd buy a fund that doesn't even try to beat the market was considered... It wasn't just seen as lazy, it was seen as giving up. Why would you do that? So one fund manager once told Jack Bogle, who founded one of the biggest index and companies, that, you know, who wants to be operated on by a mediocre surgeon? Who wants to have a mediocre lawyer? The name of the game is to be the best, especially in a country like America, right? It was considered and quite was lambasted as un-American. Right, right. Why would you want to invest? Uh, and then later on, this kind of tipped from either sort of derision to fear and hatred. And that's kind of where we're kind of getting maybe now today. Okay, hang on to that for one second. So in 1960, this guy writes an article. His name is John B. Armstrong. And he writes in... The August News uh, Journal, Financial Analyst Journal, which is still around today, and he writes about uh, a, he makes a case for managed mutual funds, meaning active management, meaning picking this stock, picking that stock, not investing in an index. That's silly. We definitely hmm. beat that. He writes this uh, uh, this paper, and he concludes that uh, that the case for fund mutual management. He highlights four leading stock-focused mutual funds, and he says it could beat the market. Easy. It could definitely be done. It turns out, as I learned from your book, that this guy's name was not really John B. Armstrong. And people were trying to figure out who this guy was, so they pieced together that it was... Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. Okay. So Jack Bogle, at this point, who goes on to champion being one of the greatest financial champions... It's according to Warren Buffett, who says, Jack, they should have a statue of Jack Bogle because he has saved investors, and we'll talk about that uh, as we go on, saved them billions, billions and billions of dollars in fees. Here he is writing under an assumed name, talking against index funds. How does that happen? He was speaking his own industry's case. I mean, Jack Bogle was, before he became the St. Jack that we know today, he was this wonder boy of the investment industry. He was the hotshot senior vice president at Wellington, one of the oldest and best established mutual fund groups in America. 
1960, some professors, this is even before the index fund was invented, but some professors dared to suggest that maybe there's so much choice in the mutual fund industry, maybe somebody should just do a, 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 a man, unmanaged portfolio of the entire market so people you know, don't have to have the, suffer the agony of choice. It was just an, a zany academic idea. And Jack Bogle, under a pseudonym, just rubbished the idea. Uh, and it goes to show that, you know, when your industry is under threat, you, you, you kind of, you, you ring the wagons. Yeah. And Jack Bogle could probably sense that this was a, a dangerous idea because he was relatively, certainly later on, steeped in the financial theory. But I think the Jack Bogle as the, the champion of passive investing that we know today is something that is a bit of a, historical revisionism that he encouraged later on in his life. Because even when he started Vanguard, that was not because he was a big fan of passive investing. It was because it was the only thing that he could do. Right, that was a whole it corporate, was essentially corp a Hail Mary. corporate intrigue, amazing stuff, yeah. boardroom fight, but hold on to that for just one second. So just to, just for, I just want our listeners to get, uh, put this in the proper context. What index funds, just in theory, this is not even practical at this point, pose, and, and, and Bogle is smart enough and intellectually honest. Well, he's not really intellectually honest because he yeah. comes out and he basically says it's not going to work. But it is about, it is probably one of the greatest innovative disruptors in an industry ever. It makes what Amazon did to retail, to brick and mortar, look like a walk in the park. Because that, you know, I don't know what the size of retail is, but it's certainly not $28 trillion. They're attacking an industry which everyone for the past 70 to 80 years, you found your father's stockbroker or uh, you inherited money and the money management or the trust department of a bank took care of it. And every year you paid them a fee and they got richer. And where are the customers' yachts? You didn't, yeah. <laughs> you didn't make money. So Bogle senses something's up. His first line is defend. And now what happens? Well, essentially, he was very soon afterwards elevated to lead Wellington. So the founder of the company handed the reins over to his protege, this young Jack Bogle, youngest CEO of the investment industry. But Wellington's is it's a really conservative organization. So it's actively managed funds, but they had balanced funds that invested in both stocks and bonds. And they'd started an inequity fund that later on you know, ended up having great success, but it wasn't a great success to begin with. So in the 60s, there was this dot-com bubble, essentially, the first dot-com bubble. But they weren't dot-coms, there were Xerox and IBM and Kodak, hot technology stocks. It was known as the go-go era. And nobody wanted boring balance funds at the time. So Bogle inherits this company with a brief to resurrect its fortunes because it was losing ground day after day. And he looks around for partners. He needs, he realizes they either need to build a go-go mutual fund or basically acquire one. So he makes the fateful decision to basically merge Wellington with one of the hottest go-go funds of the 1960s that was based up in Boston. And initially this works really well up until basically the go-go era goes like most of the other dot-com bubbles go and essentially collapses into what is later becomes the biggest bear market since the Great Depression right. in the, the late 60s and early 70s. 73, 74, right. A mm -hmm. nifty 50, all you needed was these 50 stocks, just sit back. 
it was like investing in the dot com. Same story, mm. uh, different era. No, it was it was incredible, and you know they were very different. The, the Boston partners, so Thorndike and 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 Dora, and there are a few others. They were they were good people, but they were very consensual, calm, gentle. Even though they were sort of hot young gunslingers, uh, investment wise, Bogle, you know, is a titanic character with just this immense force of will. So essentially, they have had all these tensions building up for years and years, but then essentially, when their investment performance completely fizzles and drags Wellington down with it, it mixes in really toxic ways, and they essentially have a full out warfare that ends with all the other partners ganging up together because they have more board seats and firing Jack Bogle as CEO of Wellington. Right, and what I found striking about that is Bogle was clueless. I think the vote went, what, nine to one? Uh, yeah. Something like that. And he was shocked. Like, talking about not being able to read the room, he just did not get this. Well, so I talked to quite a few of his friends about this, and they said that you know, the flip side to his incredible drive that was kind of needed for the success to get him where he was even then, he was a young man, and where he later came, you know, the flip side is that sometimes you can be obtuse to some of these signs. They all could tell he was heading towards a rupture and that he was on his way out of the company. But he still right. walked into that fateful board meeting hoping against hope but he'd win he'd win they he'd win he just couldn't envisage because he was he was so convinced that he had he was so obviously smarter than them he was so obviously better than them how could they dare sack him was what i gather how he sort of thought about this well, but you know it takes that kind of mindset to be the leader and innovator because you have to do things differently and have a different belief system uh, than the average because if you don't you will be average you wouldn't yeah. you won't be able to do something as crazy as this no and you know and that's why he managed to stage what was probably the greatest turnaround in american corporate history okay I mean, hang on hang on hang on don't jump there i want i want to want to walk through this <laughs> because uh when you read this and this is what i was going this is what I was getting at before what i found what i really liked about your book robin and i, I want to tell you you know beside being a financial history which is really great. You know, I knew some of this, but I didn't know a lot of this. Uh, I, I think you did a great service on two counts. One is, while these players are still living to get their, uh, to get their, they get the primary source, get the, uh, what Bolga was like, you know, that's going to become myth. Myth is going to take over in a couple of more years as they all die out. And you were very, uh, I like the way you, 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 you chop some of these myths to pieces because it used the evidence. Okay, put that all aside just for a second. This is a book, and these stories really are for entrepreneurs and business leaders of no doesn't mean no. Number two, insurmountable odds are, are really just, should never be looked at as insurmountable. You could figure out a way. And number three, if you have a belief in a passion, it, it'll it'll happen because every one of these every one of these pioneers these renegades would the average person even the above average person would have quit 58 times before they went ahead but these guys were so pig-headed they were so 
strong in their beliefs that this makes sense, that it became a passion to bring this product out. Is that more or less the way I'm reading it from your book? No, I mean, that's exactly what I wanted to try and get through because as much as I'm a financial journalist and I love finance, I do think this is a broader business story. It's almost like a, a very familiar story of technological innovation. It's like Ford and the first car, right? It's, you know, the index fund is the, the original fintech disruption. And these guys were people that were willing to take on a very powerful, well-established industry that is happy to be financed in this case and come out with a product that was cheaper and better. That was going to destroy. They, they were in an industry, then they were, they were planting the seeds of its own demise. Exactly. That's like a fifth column. Well, you can see it in, in, in the, 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 the several lines that run under through the entire book is the industry's unwillingness to disrupt itself. I mean, many financial companies had the chance and the opportunity, a great opportunity to become the vanguard rather than vanguard. But they said no. The odds were stacked against vanguard. Yep. But we've seen it so many times, right, that industries hate disrupting themselves. They, they hate the idea of cannibalizing their own business. So you have, even when they do it, they essentially sort of gobble themselves up or stymie themselves. Kodak famously did invent digital photography, but he just couldn't wrap its head around that that was where the future had to go. Blockbusters started, you know, what was the beginning of an online rental business. Right. But again, it right. couldn't pivot right. properly. I, I had a few, um, a few weeks ago on the show, we had um, uh, Tim Higgins who wrote uh, Power Play about Elon Musk and um, uh -huh. Elon Musk and Tesla, and he was talking about the innovation that 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 Elon Musk put in in Tesla and the way the car uh, could be updated over airwaves and how the all these kinds of amazing innovations. If you haven't listened to it, definitely, uh, folks, uh, listen to it because it's it's really a phenomenal interview. When I asked him time and again, I said, "Wait a second, General Motors had the capacity." Toyota had the capabilities. They had the resource, that everything. Why wasn't the electric vehicle, why was that Tesla's win and not theirs? And he said, you can't disrupt an industry from the inside. It takes an outsider to see all the fat and all the problems and be honest with it, where inside, no one's going to upset the apple cart. And I think Musk and, and Tesla is an interesting parallel in that I, I think sometimes we, we think that brilliant ideas will always win through anyway. And sometimes they do. It might just take time. But I think Bogle's ultimate skill, and I think what Musk did for the, the electric car as well, is just world-class salesmanship. And it's sometimes seen as this sort of a grotty skill. It's not as cool as being a technological disruptor. And this isn't to undersell what Tesla and Musk have done for electric vehicles and electric batteries. But fundamentally, Musk was able to turn electric cars and make them sexy and fun and interesting. It's something that cool people drove. They looked great. Bogle's skill, he didn't invent mutual fund, index mutual funds. He copied and pasted basically the ideas of some people that went before him. And he didn't really, in the first few years, kind of sell it that aggressively either. But once he decided to do it, he was just a world-class storyteller around this. And we humans, we love stories. And he was able to tell the story that we're now kind of all following the footsteps of Jack Bogle. 
It helps when you've got phenomenal rock hard data over decades across many countries to back it with. But he didn't originally have all, he didn't have that at the beginning. Yeah, you you you've had a line in here that one of one of his colleagues said that the convert becomes the most religious or something. What was that line yeah. or something? To nobody's more messy. Kind of, no, nobody's a bigger zealot than the converts, yeah. the late converts. Yeah. yeah, he converts into this, and all roads lead to indexing. It's yep. like if you do anything else, it's you're you know you're 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 eating you're drinking poison. You can't do that, and 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 it, I think that you need that in any innovator where yep. it's this way or no way. To, to be a success. We need the marriage of people. Sometimes you see it in a, a group of people, let's say, you know, uh, Steve Wozniak and, and uh, Jobs, right, at Apple. You needed the technologists and the salesman. Jobs was a brilliant engineer, but he was the salesman, the visionary. And in many ways, Bogle was the visionary that Vanguard needed. And, you know, we see this going in again. That's why I kind of, I like finance, and I think it's just a fascinating industry that touches so many aspects of our lives. But for me, at the core, this is just a great business story. Yeah, like I say, yeah. entrepreneurs and the challenges they face and the challenges that incumbents face. And sometimes how a, an early pioneer falls behind and gets eaten up by his rival. Well, they say the, well, the, 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 it the, grows fat and lazy and complacent. The pioneers are the ones with their arrows on the back. You know, that's really exactly. it. That's really So, okay, so let's go back to the story because this is where it gets exciting. So Bogle is, how tall was he? He's like 6'3", six, 6'2". Six, he was a tall man, right? He's a tall guy, yeah. I remember seeing him in his 80s at a conference and he was walking. He walked always with, he had a, he walked with a determination. This is after like, I don't know, maybe his fourth heart attack. And I think <laughs> he maybe just had his heart transplant at times. Someone goes, that's Jack Bogle. I said, really? I pictured a frail, this is before the internet, a frail old guy, you know, because you always see a picture. And there was this tall guy. He's a little stooped at the time, but he walked with vigor and he was taking the steps up instead of the escalator. And, and he was like, uh, you know, wow, that's, that's Bogle. So Bogle is this brilliant guy, Princeton grad, full of himself, uh, really so arrogant in terms of his cockiness of knowing what's right. I know the right play. His partners sideline him. They put him on a lifeboat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and they give him a small, little, tiny piece called Vanguard. Vanguard. And Vanguard is what at the time? It's a clerical outfit. <laughs> it was set up as a, a, a freebie to a basically save his reputation a little bit. And it was only doing paperwork for the Wellington funds. And frankly, even Wellington, the people that sacked him didn't even want to give him that. Essentially, they felt they'd given him a chance to get out with some dignity, to re re resign, and he refused, so they sacked him in the end. This was the board, the independent boards of the Wellington funds. They decided, well, Jack Bogle is a great guy. Let's give him this. Let's throw him a bone. He wanted something even more. He wanted to mutualize right. the company. Right. This was, you know, he said this was something he'd always wanted at some point, but, you know, is telling that he only proposed it once basically he'd been sacked. Right. Um, right. So, so, yeah. so, so, by the way, just to put this in perspective, here is a guy who is going to recreate the industry, a financial disruption that really has, I, I would say at this point, no equal, or maybe in the financial industry, there is no equal. Because he basically made it ubiquitous. He made it uh, sexy, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. to own a fund where um, um, a few years ago, 
Warren Buffett wrote that when he dies, he wants 90% of his money put in the Vanguard index fund, 10% in cash. I, and we're going to be, I don't want my, my wife to do anything else other than that. So this is the, the master of active management saying, when I'm out of the picture, there's no one who's going to be as good as me. It's impossible to even beat it. Put it into passive. Okay. So here's a guy. He's not only defeated, but really humiliated. He loses everything. He loses the things that are important to him, which is the recognition of being a whiz kid financial exec. And he's now put really on, what is it? Uh, where was Napoleon uh, sent to? Elba? <laughs> he's put yeah. in, in, he's put in, he's, he's exiled. <laughs> they give him this little thing. It's, I think it's 1974. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Around then. Yeah. They, 74, okay. 75. Yeah. Now he stages the most amazing, and I did not know, I don't want to tell you the detail you put in here. And I kept saying, oh, I'm going to get tripped up in this detail. But it's exciting. It's like, this is Rocky. He's starting from nothing. And like you're rooting for him, like, oh my gosh. So they give him this little thing. I think there's a handful of people even go with him and uh, reluctant. I think it was 12 people. 12 people or something, or something like that. Yeah. A clerical thing. What's Bogle's next move? Well, so I, I think that the, the, his your point around him being humiliated is kind of essential here because, you know, I don't want to go too much into his backstory, but he came from a wealthy family that yes. essentially lost all their money in the Great Depression. And his father became an alcoholic and his mother had to raise him and his brothers. So this is the sense of fall from, from grace. And yes, he made it to Princeton, but he was the only, he was basically the only person they could afford to send to college because he had the best grades. So he got to go. So he had this sense of being in the outside of this fall of grace, this chip on his shoulder from a very early age. And many of his classmates didn't have to work. He worked as a busboy. He worked as a reporter and he just works way harder than everybody else. Huge drive. And then he makes into the investment industry and has this incredible career. Yeah, but, by the way, at, the Wonder Boy. at 30 something, right? He's CEO. It was yeah. a young, I, I didn't calculate it because I don't think you put the age I in here. I think it was, yeah, 36 or 37 Some, before he was 40. Right, this Senior is, vice president in his late 20s. And this is a big thing back in the 50s or so. You, yeah. had a, you, had, it was a, you had to spend a career and this guy does it in maybe less than a, than a decade. Yeah. He was the handpicked successor by the founder of the company, Walter Morgan. It was a big deal. Oh, oh by the way, excuse me a second. I think it's like in a one year after he comes there, he becomes the guy's assistant in a heartbeat. Like, I think it was yeah. one or two years. So he moves up the corporate ladder overnight. Hugely. But he's a talent. And everybody told me that Jack Bogle was somebody who spent a little bit of time at every piece of the investment industry pile, as it were, learning everything. Right. He'd always be the first person in, the last person to leave. He'd sit there with a slide rule calculator and just do all the work. And when we talk about first, he wasn't an actual writer, so he taught himself to write. When we talk about first person there, he was getting there 7 o'clock and later on 6.30 a.m. Yeah. And he would stay. Okay. So go ahead. He's incredible drive. And then imagine when somebody like that, huge chip on their shoulder, but then has essentially a career without a single misstep. Everything is going fine until it all collapses and you're fired very publicly. And then you're given this kind of, yeah, this, you're Alba, but this isn't even Alba. This is a crappy island off the coast, right? It's not somewhere nice. This isn't the Napoleonic retirement. Um, so he decides he has to do something else with it. And I think the first clue is that he was not going to go, you know, happily retiring is the name he gave for the company. 
vanguard. That's not a name you give to a clerical outfit. That is something you clearly have more ambitious plans for. But he needs something. And the divorce agreement, essentially, with Wellington precludes him from doing a lot of things. So he can't do investment management. He can't do distribution. He can basically only do paperwork for their funds. But what he decides, after fortuitously reading a newspaper article about some index funds started on the West Coast and elsewhere that were only for pension plans, uh, Paul Samuelson, the, the, the grandfather of American economics, the first American Nobel laureate uh, in economics, says, why can't somebody do this for ordinary investors? And that is the break that Bogle needs. That is the marriage of essentially the his constricted circumstances and this opportunity. Because what he then does is go to the board, and this is frankly complete sophistry, but he says, well, obviously we aren't allowed to do investment management, but an index fund is unmanaged. So clearly that's okay, right? Outrageously, the board actually agrees with them. Did you put and did you put something did you put something in here? If I don't know if I wrote it down or, or you wrote it, something where that was enough of a wedge uh, to fit a truck through. Did you write that? Because I remember that was a, oh, I think so. Yeah, you I, had I, it. I, I if it was a great, if one we, of his quotes. Something like that. It was in uh, yeah. It couldn't have been mine. So it's something where it was enough daylight. Oh, that was it. It was enough daylight to drive a truck through. That's yeah. what it was, something to that effect. <laughs> so it wasn't management because we're not managing. And, and no. by the way, you can't blame the, you know, looking back, I was trying to think, how the board be so stupid? They weren't because this was a nothing. This was an idea. This yeah. was, even if it did work, six people will do it. Index funds had only been around for around five years at that, four or five years. And there were a few hundred million dollars in it. There were some pension plans, but there was no money in it. Wellington might have decided to try and kibosh it themselves when the board, the Wellington board approved it, but they also just didn't care. I mean, let Jack do his little thing, right? Go ahead, have fun. Okay, so Jack started- selling index funds to order investors was, you know, a big ask. People thought it would be an abject failure. Right, so Jack finds, and that's, his, that's what his brilliance is. He read the same thing that everybody could have read. It was in the newspaper, I think it was a newspaper research paper. I'm not really sure. What was it, a research, uh, Samuelson? I think it was a researcher. Well, Samuelson was in a paper. I think it was Newsweek. He wrote several Newsweek. forms. It's unclear exactly which one Bogle read. Okay. But. He read it, there, but it was out there. It was no secret. Mm. And and this is where I think the entrepreneur in him uh, shines, where he's like a like a Bezos or a Zuckerberg or a, 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 you know, a Gates. He sees that and he puts two and two together, creates his own opportunity, and then goes really, really big and catches everyone sleeping. Well, so it's kind of a, a fortuitous marriage of, of opportunity and structure and, frankly, blind luck. Uh, so Bogle would later say that structure follows, that strategy follows structure. So the structural vanguard meant that this was the structure they had to pursue. But I talked to friends of his, and they said it, was, it wasn't necessarily a grand plan. It was just something. And something he could ideally stick two fingers up at his the partners that f fired him. So Samuelson endorsing it was a huge deal. And index funds were growing from a very tiny base then. But nobody really thought this was a huge opportunity, including Jack Bogle. So he talked a big game 
And he even they had an internal pool and betting how much money they thought it could raise. And he said something outrageous, like $150 million. When even people internally thought that was that was a bit too bullshy. That was too aggressive. But for him, it was an opportunity. He needed to do something. Right. Okay. And this was that wedge, that first hole that he could start breaking down or loosening the straitjacket that Van Gaan was in because of the divorce agreement. Okay. So it was just something. It, right. The problem was it was the only thing he could do. It was with. just it was a toehold. That's it. And he yeah. made the most of it. He made the best of it. Yeah, and and it powered through. Okay. So they, as 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 you'll know, the the Vanguard 500 or the first index investment trust was an abject failure. It was a cataclysmic disaster. They weren't even. They raised eleven million dollars. Okay, what were they? What were they supposed this. to do? So I, I remember that the thing it was. Bogle says a hundred million, and he, yeah. they take a pool, and uh, the most conservative estimate I think was fourteen or so, fourteen million or so, and they raise what was it eleven? Yeah, eleven million dollars. So uh, I think they're going to give up at that point. Was that was uh, was that the part where uh, yeah. the underwriters because they get oh, was, uh, Vanguard was that Kaminsky that. was that Kaminsky uh, uh, Merrill Lynch no no not not him yet so this was Dean Witter then so this was this was in the mid seventies so Kaminsky I think he'd started his career and and, and Merrill then but he wasn't the CEO then so who who no so who, the underwriter Dean Witter Dean and Witter. some of the other um, they wanted to scrap it they said look this is such an embarrassment let's just kill it and just move on. But Bogle, I think, like you say, he he realized this was the start of something. So he'd later call it a, you know, a commercial failure, but an artistic success. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it's kind of a classic Bogleism on what was, you know, a disaster. $11 million wasn't even enough to buy all the stocks in the S&P 500. They had to do sampling. The first, you know, basically had to approximate the S&P 500 for the first few years. But it was that first opening the first loosening of the Wellington straitjacket, because for the first time they were managing money independently. Of, of course, his argument was that it was unmanaged. Right, but, uh, right. But they were using business. He had a, he, he, the shop yeah. was open. Okay, how does he go for 1974 from 11 million dollars to Vanguard today in the trillion dollar range? I think it is a little more, maybe. Oh yes, eight trillion dollars. Eight trillion dollars. Yeah, just absolutely staggering. <laughs> Eight trillion dollars. Fill that gap in for me. What is Bogle's magic? Well, so various things. And I think Bogle, you know, he was a, a visionary. So there were some things that were sort of informed by his own prejudices, as it were, but he was a really good person to capture the zeitgeist. And you could see that, you know, this was a very high cost industry. And if you could position yourself to be the low cost provider in the high cost industry, that's a good commercial opportunity. So he did certain things like start a bond fund when they started becoming popular and money market funds. And actually the success of money market funds Fueled everything. basically saved Vanguard. Because I mean, basically uh, Wellington didn't want to do this. So Vanguard did it. And this was another sort of loosening of this straitjacket. And also it was such a success. They did bail Vanguard out until the index funds started taking off. But then, you know, he went and talked to every journalist who would ever talk to anybody. And he was the industry legend that was willing to tweak the nose of everybody there. He was willing to say to any journalist that came calling in person or on the phone, 
kind of what they wanted to hear, that the industry is full of fat cats ripping off ordinary people's money. So he just became this St. Jack and was able to lift up Vanguard and profile it. Uh, even though he was super cheap on marketing, they didn't need to pay much for marketing because they had St. Jack. For, it, was, it, was, it was free marketing using journalists yeah. like you to to basically sell his message. And he, not really sell his message, echo the message that they were writing about, that Wall Street was out to screw the average folk. Exactly. Now you had a and source. Now you had an insider yeah. telling you that's right. Exactly. You have somebody saying exactly what you want, which is always a titillating thing for any financial journalist, right? And he was adept at that. And then, you know, they started new index funds at the opportune times when the U.S. also started embarking on the biggest twin bull run in history, right? After Volcker basically managed to crush, Paul Volcker managed to crush inflation, and started lowering interest rates. The US, you know, there were a few blips along the way, like 1987, but broadly speaking, had this phenomenal bull run. And you had the growth of corporate pension plans, of 401k plans. And a lot of people thought, well, let's just choose the low-cost provider. And who was that? Well, it was Vanguard. And for a long time, they had this clean run at index funds. So index funds didn't really take off until the very late 80s, really early 90s. But because essentially, because of the remnants of Glass-Steagall put after the Great Depression, banks like Wells Fargo or State Street, which had very successful index fund franchises for pension plans and private banks and big institutions, they couldn't sell to ordinary investors. And the people that could, let's say, of fidelity, they hated the idea. It was an anathema to them. So he had a clean run at index funds for a long time, was able to build up a commanding lead. And obviously, the magic of Vanguard is that it is owned by its own funds. This quirk of fate, how Jack Bogle was able to engineer this divorce, was that Vanguard set up this, Wellington funds set up Vanguard to be owned by themselves. And that's why every time the more money Vanguard makes, that money is used to lower costs further. So you have this perfect flywheel that the more money Vanguard takes in, the cheaper. the cheaper it can sell its funds and the more money it gets in again right, and again right. and again. And well, again. what I found amazing, because I remember I started back in this industry in the 80s, and load funds within 8.5%, which means you put $10,000 in, you only started with $9,200. $800 went to pay a sales commission, which was, you know, so you have to make 10% just to break even. So uh, Vanguard has a load in the beginning, or I think if I recall that, right? They all had pretty much at the beginning. And it wasn't the first no-load fund, but Bogle was good, good at seeing the way the direction was, was going. And it was part of his kind of, we want to position ourselves as the low-cost provider. Right. Well, when, because, I mean, Jack Bogle always used to say that he was not a, a big fan of the efficient markets hypothesis that Gene Farmer postulated, that kind of underpinned the first index funds. But he was a big believer in the cost-matters hypothesis. Like you say, with a big sales fee, a load fee, you're kind of starting every game a little bit behind the curve. A lot, you're a lot behind the curve. dollars and getting you're, you're starting a lot. You're starting 10% in the hole. And yeah. so that does not include, that's 10% of that, that does not include the management fees that are in there. So you have so many hurdles you have to get over just to catch up to the index if you're, and, and unless you're a phenomenal, you pick that 5% of the people that can beat the market, 
you're going to be wait. You're, the your lead is constantly going to be uh, um, uh, lengthen. You're your lead. You're you're going to be behind exponentially. <laughs> you just can't catch up. It's impossible. So yeah. so uh, what I, what I found interesting was that Bogle not only read the industry and saw the disruption, but it becomes almost he becomes a zealot in trying to see how low we can go. He does away with the the fee, the uh, load, which is nothing more than a sales commission, folks. And for those of you who are old enough to remember, all it was was they lowered that to four and a half or so. Then you had no load funds, but still within these funds, you had one to 2% of management fees, custodial fees in there. So just think of, gosh, it was crazy. But now, now I think Vanguard's down to three basis points or so. I think four for some of the cheapest four. funds. But I mean, close to zero. Right. So, I mean, it's astonishing when you think about how expensive it was for ordinary people to invest 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago and how cheap it is today. Oh, it's astonishing gosh. what's happening. So, so a basis point, folks, is each basis point is one one hundredth of a percent. So there is a penny, for example. So 100 basis points makes up one full percent, right? So yep. when a $10,000 investment uh, at one percent is $1,000, at one basis point is what? Uh, uh, $10. $10, my math right? $1,000, yeah. Uh, one, $10,000, 10% is $1,000, 1% is $100, one basis point is 10. So he's charging around $40 for what Wall Street was getting close to 1,000 plus. Yeah. That's a huge advantage. And by the way, that extra difference at $960, $970 goes in your pocket. Exactly. You make that money. And this compounds over time, right? I mean, it's astonishing. It's not just the sort of the annual cost, but over time, just as returns compound, you let the stock market work for you, the costs work against you. And it really adds up to be astonishing amount of money if you're talking somebody saving the market for 40 years. Right. I mean, I, I saw recently a study, somebody looked at just the past 25 years and just for U.S. stock funds, some classic U.S. stock market equity funds and calculated the direct savings. This is ignoring the fact that index funds have beaten the vast majority of active managers over the past 25 years. They calculated over $350 billion just in saved fees that's gone straight to people's pockets. Right. And that's just the direct savings. Just imagine all the pressure that, you know, the average active mutual fund fee has fallen by a third over the past 20, 30 years, thanks to the competition from index funds. So even if you're not invested in them, even if you've never even heard of a Vanguard fund, you and I and everybody has benefited indirectly from the competitive pressure they've put on all investment fees. You know, I remember when I was, when I was in the business in the 80s, I got in 83, and mid-80s, no one, even the end of the 80s, no one asked you the mutual funds you're investing in. Nobody asked us what the expense ratio was or the expense fee was, zero. Uh, 90s, they started to. Uh, but you poo-pooed that away saying, what's the difference of, you know, nine-tenths or one percent? What's really the difference if we're going to outperform? So it wasn't a bill. But when you stopped outperforming, when you never outperformed really, and you had yeah. these fees... The reason for your existence is kind of uh, it disappears. <laughs> yeah. 
you, you don't need to exist. It's something we've seen in every big downturn, right? I mean, critics will always say, well, come the next downturn, when the year stock market drops 50%, you'll drop 50%, you'll wish you invested in an active manager. It hasn't happened. But what we can see is that active funds tend to do better in boom times. Because yes, when you're making 20, 30% a year, maybe in a really great year, then your fund charging 2% doesn't matter that much. You're still making lots of money, right? But it's the downturn when it proves that a lot of these funds have gone over their skis and done lots of risky, kind of reckless things. We actually see the shift into index funds is actually accelerated During with yeah. every single major market downturn since the 70s. Right. And right. the active management community will always say, no, next downturn, it'll prove the fr fundamental fragility of index funds. And lo and behold, it never happens. And maybe it will at some point. But so far, I, I, I struggle to see why we shouldn't continue to see even accelerating money into index funds, given that the investment industry, and I, it's, I sometimes fall into the, the pit of, of bashing it too hard. And these are hardworking men and women who are smart, bright, and they do try to do the best jobs. I just think it's a really hard job. But this is an industry that still has profit margins beyond big tech. Like the average US investment company, the listed part, has a profit margin that is greater than Google's. This is an industry that has a lot of profit that can come out of it because that is profit that they're making on the back of savers. Right, someone's so I hope right. Someone's paying. It them. comes under pressure. Yeah, well, you know, look, there, there are, there are great managers out there who could who beat the market over long periods of time, no question. But the problem is, are you, John Q. Public, able to isolate out of the hundred those four or five? And if the assumption is I can, you don't need an index fund. But if you can't. You know, what did Warren Buffett say? Know-nothing investor ceases to be a know-nothing investor when they invest in a, an S&P index fund. You know yeah. what you can't do. Therefore, you get the fund. And I tell people all the time, if you want to beat the S&P 500, all you need to do is invest in an index fund. That's really it. Only yeah. do something different if you feel you have some type of edge, that you have some advantage or some way of selecting a manager or picking stocks on your own that you're able to outperform. If you don't think you have a clear advantage, stop trying. I mean, if you'd invested in an index fund 15 years ago, the S&P 500 index fund, you would have beaten over 95% of all the thousands of mutual funds in America over that period. You know, these are highly paid, highly trained, hardworking professionals who do try to do a great job. And you would have, by just doing that one single lazy decision 15 years ago, statistically beaten 95% of them. Yeah, it's just, it's just staggering. You know, every time you look at it, it just, you know, it just, uh, it, the, the advantages for the average investor to just buy Vanguard or any of the, even Schwab, I, the, yeah. the, the, the fees are so ridiculously low. It's kind of free, if you, if you ask me. And to be paying such a low amount of money for them to man, for them to put in an index fund, to them, it looks like, you know, we're taking this, we're, we're, we're making a fortune. But it was, became a commoditized business where it's scale is all that matters. It's really a, an engineering business, if you will. You know, just keeping, you know, it's, it's the Model T Ford on the, it's the assembly line. <laughs> you know, just keep yep. squeezing out costs. That's all there is to it. There's no magic here. Uh, and it's, it's going to go free for not just the sort of plain vanilla. We're basically at free already. 
of a fidelity you can actually get like a, a broad-based us equity index fund for free now and i think we're heading towards that for broader parts of the market because Frankly, there are other ways that these investment funds can make money. There are all sorts of technical sort of gimmicks they can do, like they can lend out the shares and share the revenue a little bit with you. Um, so, for example, some of the Vanguard funds, they still have, they're more expensive than, let's say, Charles Schwab fund, but they'll share more of the securities lending revenues with you. So they basically sometimes work out to be free. Um, and, you know, they want to upsell you. It's a bit like if you go to a big like supermarket chain, they'll quite often sell you, let's say, beer or diapers at cost because it gets you through the door and then try and upsell you on right. expensive chips and dips. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how the investment industry is working. They kind of realize that index funds or broad, boring, well-diversified index funds are table stakes and they will sell it basically for nothing or close to nothing. And that's where we're heading over the next 10 years. And it's... Frankly, a great time to be an American saver, which you couldn't have said for much of the past century. Yeah, and you know, just come back from the days of prior to 1975 before May Day, where you had to spend a fortune on fixed commissions uh, to buy and sell. Now buying and selling is virtually free. Yeah, you know, it's incredible. It's, it's a and when you think of it as well, I mean, it's almost astonishing that active managers are actually doing worse over time than they used to given that they don't have the headwind of trading costs as much. I mean, this was, in their defense, salaries were a big chunk of why they underperformed back in the day, in Bogle's day. But trading costs were astronomical, right? And there wasn't the same realization that turnover hurt returns. So this was this constant headwind. It was a bigger part of the problem than, frankly, the cost of the mutual fund uh, and sales loads and stuff like that. Today, you know, even though trading costs for big institutions are, are pretty low, I mean, close to zero as well, actually, as we see, you know, the average performance of active funds actually seems to be declining even as passive keeps growing, probably because it's almost like a poker game where if we think of the market as, you know, 10 friends playing poker and, you know, people dropping out all the time, usually expect the worst managers the worst car players to drop out of the market that doesn't mean the game it gets easier it gets harder and that's why we see with markets that i actually think markets might actually be getting more efficient or harder to beat because all the mediocre managers are the ones that are kind of dropping out and they're getting replaced by people who are younger smarter using faster computers and more data than ever before yeah so that's why we're actually seeing counterintuitively despite the fall in trading costs and just, you know, how much money has gone into passive, we've seen active management performance actually get worse. Yeah, you know, back in the day, but, you know, even Buffett and Munger said if they started now, it'd be very hard to replicate any of their yeah. performance. They were playing against a lot of dumb people. Uh, yeah. today, today you're playing against the uh, smartest of the smartest of the smartest. If I, I looked, uh, you know, just recently, uh, um, uh, college degrees aren't returning much except MBAs. You know, I think the warden graduated the richest class of their first jobs, $155,000. So it yeah. definitely pays to get an MBA. And who's hiring them? General Motors to build plants? You know, Wall Street are hiring these people. So you have a much, you have a lot of shark poker plays playing poker amongst themselves. And that yeah. doesn't end well because you need the patsies. Yeah. 
was Bo, uh, Buffett once said that active managers are expecting to all overperform. It's a bit like everybody going in mm. to poker game and saying, guys, look, if we all play well here, I think we can all end up with this. <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't work that way, does it? It just doesn't happen. Yeah. And by bottom line, I just want to conclude with this, uh, Robin, is that Bogle and all these index pioneers that you showcase in this book and all the way forward, we didn't have time to talk about Larry Fink and BlackRock. Yeah which uh, is just transforming the industry in a huge way on that, on that end. If you want to know anything about that, folks, get the book. There'll be a whole story about this. But I think the key here is that the, um, the investing public has fared enormously well by capitalism because it was capitalism that allowed this type of innovation, that allowed this type of competition, and that destroyed the fat and the weak. Essentially, yes. I mean, it was a great idea that, you know, and eventually they went through and they went through the marketplace of ideas and actual capital. Right now, index funds are ascendant. And we talked about some of the numbers early on, but the stat I always hold up is that all index funds put together is twice as big as the combined hedge fund, private equity, and venture capital industries. Amazing. Twice as big as them combined. Yeah. And it's all based on the idea that cheap, Simple, transparent investing works best for most people. Yeah, my, so That's pretty astonishing. My grandma could beat you. <laughs> that's yeah. really it. By picking yeah. a Vanguard fund. All right, Robin, I wish you the best of luck with this book. The name of the book, folks, is How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. The book's Trillions by Robin Wigglesworth. Definitely, if you're interested in financial history, mutual funds, index funds, Active management, get it. But even if not, just from an entrepreneurial sense, if you're starting a business, this book should give you inspiration how to continue to persevere in the face of overwhelming odds and to upset an industry from within. It must have been really tough uh, when these guys went to conferences. Maybe they were, <laughs> I would have worn a bulletproof vest because uh, <laughs> they were, <laughs> they were not popular. They were not popular, folks. Robin, thanks so much, man, and best of luck to you. No, thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.